invite you to join me this morning in the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Hebrews chapter number six. As Ron has already mentioned, um, we trust that you all had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I know that uh, for me it was a wonderful day with family and food, right? Family, food, and fellowship. And so all of those, all of those ingredients were there. And so now it's time to start working some of that off. Um, well, maybe we'll wait till Christmas is over and shoot for the new year. And, but it is, it, is a, it is a great time of the year, isn't it? I, um, just coming into church this morning and see all, seeing all the decorations, and it just kind of lifts your spirit up for, for the season that we're in. And uh, it should be that way all, all year round, but these seasons are set aside uh, especially so that we can remember what the Lord has done for us and that He cares about us, and um, we can walk in that, in that hope and walk in that confidence in Him. And so, um, with that being said, we're going to read this morning from Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to read the entire chapter and then um, pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, try to unfold some of it for you for understanding purposes. Hebrews 6 and verse 1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they have crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk in the rain that falls on it, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promise, or the promises. For what God hath, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, have, we who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. And Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word this morning. We trust that it is alive, that it is active, that it is capable of changing and transforming lives. We place our hope in its power this morning. We also trust that the Holy Spirit of God is moving in this midst, that he is capable of bringing understanding and clarity. And we ask, Lord, that you would accomplish that today. We pray your blessing upon the reading of your word, the singing. And now, Lord, we ask for your blessing. We ask for your grace in the explanation of the text, as well as the understanding that um, we pray would be associated with that. We love you, Lord. Thank you for making us a part of your family, giving us the opportunity to be here this morning. And we will give you the praise for it all in Christ's name. Amen. As a child growing up in a pastor's home and being taught from an early age that all men are sinful, that the punishment for sin is death and hell, and that Jesus is the only solution. I prayed the prayer for salvation for the first time when I was five years old, but I still had no peace. The problem wasn't that I had prayed the prayer for salvation when I was too young. The problem was that I had prayed the prayer for salvation hundreds of times after that. Anytime I heard a message about hell, watched a movie about being left behind, or heard a radio program that depicted the end of the world, I would again say the prayer for salvation. In all these prayers, I was never able to come to true confidence in my salvation, and I had no internal peace. This is a common reality. This story is of me. This is my testimony. And this is a common reality for many of us in the church age today, many who live in the 21st century church. This is a common reality for us. We go through life doing all of the things that we think God requires of us. We do whatever he asks of us because we're afraid of hell and we're afraid of condemnation and we're afraid of judgment and we're afraid of standing before his throne. And so therefore, we seek to appease him by trying to satisfy him through doing all of the things that he quote unquote requires of us. The problem with this is twofold. Those who are unsaved but think that they are saved because they said a prayer, because they experienced something or some event in their life, something that they went through or something that they did has assured them of their salvation. They're confident in their salvation. They're confident in their being able to stand before God one day and be accepted. And their confidence is based upon something that they have done or something that has been done to them in relations to an experience or an event. And unfortunately, there are many that sit in our churches today who have such an experience, who have gone through such an event, and believe themselves confidently to be saved, 
They believe themselves confidently to one day be able to stand before the God of the universe who will judge the wicked. They believe themselves confidently to be able to be accepted by him. This is one side of this problem. The other side of this problem is those who are truly saved. Those who are truly trusting in Jesus Christ and they are saved, but yet they have doubts. They have struggles. They have difficulties with the assurance of their salvation. They wrestle with whether or not they are eternally saved. They might hear a message that deals with the condemnations of hell. They might deal with the, hear a, a story on the television or, or hear a radio um, presentation that talks about God's wrath and God's holiness and God's justice. And, and in hearing that, they might become a, a fearful and afraid and, and then begin to doubt their salvation and begin to wrestle through whether or not they're truly followers of Jesus Christ. I will submit to you this morning that it is likely that anybody who is a true follower of Christ at some point in time in their life have wrestled with their security. The humility that comes along with the salvation that we experience is a humility that causes us to recognize our fallenness. It causes us to realize how unworthy we are. It causes us to recognize how broken we are. It causes us to realize how unacceptable we are to God. When we recognize how unacceptable we are to God, it sometimes brings those doubts and those struggles and those concerns and those fears and frustrations into our life and into our hearts. These are not necessarily bad things. They should be associated with our humility. On the other end of the spectrum are those who have full confidence in their salvation. There's no doubt in their mind at all, and they build that confidence in the fact that they're saved in their worthiness. They see themselves as, God would never condemn me. I am a good person. I have done this many good deeds, and therefore God would never cast me into eternal damnation for the sins that I have committed. I I am definitely not only saved, but I am one of his favorite sheep. And they go through life with this extreme, unfounded confidence that God would never condemn them because of how valuable that they are. We see these ditches on both sides of the road. We see those who are confident to condemnation. And we see those who struggle with doubt, but they are ultimately, and in the end, delivered from their sins and their their humility that they walk in is what causes them to have this level of doubt. The Lord's goal, though, this morning, the Lord's, the Lord's um, pressing on our hearts today is that he doesn't want us to have that doubt. He wants us to have this full confidence. He wants us to have this extraordinary confidence in him. He wants us to believe strongly in our salvation, in our relationship with him, in such a way that it leads us to greater works for him. It leads us to a closer, more intimate walk with him, a greater relationship with him that is built around our salvation and our assurance of that salvation. We see in this passage of scripture, in the first eight verses, The author deals with these people who have a false assurance of their salvation. They have had an experience of the Holy Spirit. They have been enlightened to the Word of God. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And they have tasted the powers of the age to come. 
In other words, they have understood even those things that are going to happen in the future. They have, they have grasped these truths. They have understand these truths from an external perspective. And he deals with this group of people that have experienced, had, had this experience, walked in this quote-unquote light. And he says to them that they have never repented of their sins. They have never seen themselves as unworthy. They have never recognized that their sins have made them the enemy of God. And by not recognizing themselves as being the enemies of God, they themselves cannot experience the salvation that God offers in and through Jesus Christ. They've had every experience to bring comfort to their hearts based upon themselves, but they've had no true intimacy with Christ. They've never truly seen themselves as sinners, and they've never truly embraced Jesus Christ as the only hope that they have for salvation. This is a dangerous place to be. The author literally says it is impossible for them to be restored. It is impossible for them to be saved. It is impossible for them to be brought to a place of repentance. If they're unwilling to repent, it's impossible for them to be brought to a place of repentance. In the same way that Matthew 19 says, salvation for a rich man is as impossible as the camel going through the eye of a needle. This is the same impossibility that we're dealing with here. Somebody who sees themselves as worthy will never come to a place in their own strength and intellect and and mind to believe themselves to be unworthy and to repent of their sins and to place their faith fully in Christ. This is not the main purpose of my message this morning, but it is a backdrop. It It is a foundation. It is that back piece. And if you don't understand the wrath of God, if you don't understand the justice of God, if you don't understand your fallen condition, you will never appreciate, you will never embrace the glories of Christ and his salvation. You will never embrace what Christ Jesus did for you on the cross. When we picture in our, in, as we read the word of God and around the Christmas season, we see the birth of Christ. And some people teach about the death of Christ as well. And we read Isaiah 53 where he was bruised for our transgressions. He was chastened for our iniquities. And we look at Jesus on the cross and we see a man who is, has a crown of thorns on his head beaten down into his brow, who has been beaten with a, with a whip with nine uh, leather straps on it and each one with a sharp object on the end, literally where his insides have been, his body has been opened up. When we look at that picture and we see him hanging on the cross, we realize that the reason why Christ hung on the cross in that way is that's how God views sin. That's how God views sin. That's how much God hates sin to the point where he would turn his back on his own son because his son had become sin for us. We must grasp this. We must feel the depths of our sinfulness. We must embrace the the length and the, and the, and the, uh, the depths of how unworthy we are. We must be humbled by our unworthiness instead of becoming full of pride as if we are something that is a prize to God. The next verses in verse 9 through verse 20, which are the verses about assurance, the Lord presses in on assuring us of our salvation. This is not just about the negatives of somebody who is thinking that they're saved and not saved, but this passage is also about those who think that they're not saved, but they are saved. 
This is about those who have, have embraced Christ and, and struggle because they are humble and they realize that they're sinful and they realize that they don't deserve God's kindness or favor and they acknowledge that and they accept that, but yet they, but yet they trust and they believe and they embrace what Christ Jesus has done for them. These 12 verses are, are the Lord's way of pressing, if you will, pressing in to reassure those people who are struggling with doubts. And again, I will submit to you that I believe that most true converts who have been humbled by the grace of God struggle at some level with their unworthiness. This is why the Lord speaks of it and and presses it in to our hearts. In verses 9 through 12, you'll notice, and I'm not going to read them again, we looked at them last week, but you'll notice that all of the emphasis on pressing in for our confidence, pressing us to believe that we are part of God's family, are built around us. He talks about, he calls us his children, he talks about the works that we've accomplished, that, that he, will not, uh, he will not overlook, that he will reward He talks about our position with him, and then he talks about our growth, the the spiritual growth that he has accomplished with us. So verse 9 through 12 talk about the fruits that we are producing that would affirm us as the children of God. Fruits that are taking place in our life, the outward things that are happening that would affirm that somebody might walk up to you and say, you know, man, I just really sense God's working in your life. I just really sense God's blessing in your life. I sense God working through you to minister to other people. These are some outward things that, um, that help us affirm that we are children of God. But what, what the author does is he goes, he goes one step further. And again, you'll notice that 9 through 12 deal with our standing, our fruits, and our growth, which is fine, which is good, but it's not satisfactory. How about, how about the days that we don't feel saved? How, how about the days that we don't feel fruitful? How about the days that we don't feel like we're children of God? How about the days that we don't feel like we're growing at all? We don't feel like we're moving forward. We feel like we're moving backwards. What about those days? Does anybody in here have those days? Where you feel like, I'm not fruitful, I'm not growing, and I'm not a child of God. What about those days? What do, we, what do we cling to? What do we hold on to in those moments in our Christian life where things are not going the way that they should be going? When we don't feel like we're blessed, when we don't feel like our cup is running over, right? We feel like our cup is almost empty. What about those days? The last eight verses of this passage deal with those days. It's like, what, do we, what can we focus on in those moments when we feel hopeless? What can we focus on in those moments when we feel helpless? What can we focus on this, in those moments when everything that we can see in ourselves is failing us? When we look at ourselves and we see that there is nothing in me that makes me worthy of the Lord. There's nothing in me that makes me valuable to the Lord. What can we focus on in these moments? Because these are the moments, folks, that we live in that discourage us and, and try to push us down and try to defeat us. What can we focus on in these moments? This is what the last eight verses of this passage of Scripture deals with. 
1 John 3 and verse 20 says this, whenever our heart condemns us, when our heart is the core of who we are, it's not talking about the thing that's beating in your body, it's talking about your heart. and It's the core of who you are. When your heart condemns you, he says this, God is greater than your heart. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. This text answers that question. So with, this, with the flow of, this, of these last eight verses, the way that it works is the Lord is pressing in for what I'm, what I'm calling a strong assurance or a deeper assurance. He's, he's pressing in here from having confidence in what we're producing. He's pressing in to, to having a, a deeper level of confidence, a deeper, a deeper level of assurance. He doesn't, doesn't want us just to build hope, confidence, assurance in what we are seeing in our life because it's kind of fragile, isn't it? It's kind of fragile. I mean, some days it's great, and other days it's like, oh my goodness, right? It's fragile. The Lord is pressing in further, saying to me, saying to you with a compassionate, loving heart, he's saying, I want you to, I want you to build on something more than just what you're producing. I want you to build on something more than just what you are accomplishing. I want you to build on something unique. So here's how the flow of this goes. I want to I read this to you. The, the middle of this text gives us the, gives us the point of emphasis, and then it's surrounded with some details, and we'll get into those as well this morning. So verse 17, so when God, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, now just notice that God, this is God's desire. He wants to show to us in a more convincing way, right? Okay, here are some convincing things. You're, you're fruitful, you're growing, you're, you feel like you're one of God's children. Those are some convincing things, but I want you to be more convinced. I, I want to press in further to convince you of a greater confidence that you can have in Christ, a greater assurance that you can have. I want to press into that. So when the Lord desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, would have fl- we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. I want to stop there. We'll read the rest here in a few minutes. So there are two things in the middle of this text. One is the Lord's pressing. What is he pressing into us? And two is, who is he pressing into This is really important because sometimes people who are not followers of Christ want to embrace the Lord's pressing in, and they haven't yet dealt with the the first step, which is to enter into a relationship with Christ, okay? In other words, they want to enjoy the assurance, they want to enjoy the confidence, they want to enjoy the strength that comes from being a part of God's family, but but they haven't yet entered into His family, so he makes this point to begin with, who is, who is the group of people to which the Lord is speaking? Who is he wanting to assure? Who is he wanting to confirm? It's obvious, based upon this text of Scripture and other texts of Scriptures, 
that he's not pressing in on the unsaved. He's not pressing in on those who are ungodly, who those, on those who have strong confidence in themselves. He's not pressing in on them. He's not desiring for them to have confidence in their salvation. Probably the last thing that they need, well, likely the last thing that they need in that moment is to have confidence in their salvation, which is not truly a salvation. To have confidence in something that's not really true about them. Confidence on the outside that's not true about them on things that are not true about them on the inside. So the Lord, first of all, he's not pressing in. He's not trying to reassure or give confidence to those who are not his children. I've heard people say this to me before in in sessions and counseling or whatever might be the case. They said to me, you know what? I know I'm a Christian and therefore I can do whatever I want to do. This is not the person that the Lord is pressing in on here. What the Lord is pressing in with that person is salvation because that person is lost. They're an unbeliever. They're not a follower of Christ. 1 John chapter number 1 says, He who is walking in darkness is not in the light. And the whole book of 1 John tells us that those who are walking in habitual sin are those who do not have the truth of God within them. Those who do not love their brother whom they can see, how can they say that they love God whom they cannot see? These are outward expressions of the the transformation that's taking place in our heart. So God is not pressing in assurance on those who are not saved. Matter of fact, he tells us in Hebrews 10, those who continue in sin willfully after they have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for their sins. Wow. It is such a powerful statement. Those who know the truth and continue to walk in their ways, in their own selfish direction, there is no sacrifice for their sins. Who is it meant for? We know it's not meant for those who are ungodly. It's no, it's, we know it's not meant for those who are unsaved. So who is it meant for? Well, he gives us two terms that describe it. He says, number one, God desired to show more convincingly to those who are the heirs of the promise. So he describes this group of people as being heirs of the promise. And we go back to Genesis 12 and we see what promise he's talking about. God told Abraham that if you will bless Israel, right? If you will bless Abraham's people, then God will bless you. But if you curse Abraham's people, God will curse you. Okay, you remember that promise in Genesis chapter number 12? He says to Abraham, Abraham was not significant. God called him and made him significant. And said to him, if, if people bless you, I will bless you. But if people curse you, I will curse you. Now, here's what's interesting. That Jesus Christ comes in the line of Abraham. And Jesus Christ is truly the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of those promises in the New Testament. Therefore, the promise that's being referred to here is simply this. Those who bless Christ... Those who obey Christ, those who trust and put their dependence on Christ, these are the heir of the promise. Those who do not trust Christ, who do not depend upon Christ, they are not a part of the promise, and they are, they are to be cursed. They will ultimately face the condemnation of the Lord. He describes them as being the heirs of the promise, and then he goes on in the latter parts of this verse. He says, he describes them as those who have fled for refuge. 
Those who have fled for refuge. This is just simply a term that means, it means to flee away, to, 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 uh, to, 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 to flee to safety. Um, and we can picture it in a number of different ways. You think of animals, when we think of the fires that we've experienced around California, you see these, if you ever see pictures, you see these animals and they're just leaping and they're trying to get away from these fires as fast as they possibly can. Um, animals even have an instinct where they know something is in danger even before it happens, like storms in Nebraska. Um, you, the animals know. I mean, you can watch the response of the animals and know that something is coming that's not going to be good. The, these, these animals have this instinct. The Bible says that this pressing of confidence, this pressing of assurance is those, is those who have fled away. Okay? They're afraid of something. There's something that they're afraid of, and they're fleeing what they're afraid of so that they might, have, they might find comfort and security in something else. They're fleeing. This promise that is being pressed into these people is only being pressed into those who have fled from something that is fearful to something that is safe. And what they fled from, according to scriptures, is they're fleeing from the wrath of God. They're fleeing from the fact that because of their sins and because of God's wrath is towards their sins and they realize and recognize that they are condemned and they are judged and they flee from his wrath. The Bible warns us to flee from the wrath of God that is to come. They flee from the wrath of God and they run to the only one who is capable of delivering them from the wrath of God and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can deliver somebody from the wrath of God. But listen to me this morning, folks. It is not, this pressing in of confidence is not meant for those who have not fled from God's wrath. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never embraced that you're a sinner and that you are on God's enemy list and that he will judge every man in righteousness, you have never fled from that which you need to flee from and that causes you to embrace Christ. And therefore, this pressing in of confidence, this pressing in of assurance, it's not meant for you. Please do not receive this as being a pressing in of confidence for you. Please receive this as a pressing in for salvation for you. And then the pressing in of confidence will follow. God will press in the confidence that he wants you to have, but the confidence that he is pressing is not meant for those who have not fled from the wrath of God. Scriptures talk about those who are, hurtled, are huddled under the shadow of his wings, those who are resting in the fullness of his grace, his strength, and his deliverance. Who does the Lord want, who does the Lord want to be confident this morning? He wants us to be confident if we are resting in him. He wants us to be confident if we are trusting in him. God is not concerned if you're confident if you're trusting in yourself. He's not concerned that you're confident if you're trusting in your religion or your works or your friends or your successes or your money or your blessings. God is not, God is not concerned about your confidence if you're not trusting in Christ. What he is concerned is those who trust in Christ will be confident people. They will be sure people. So this is a message meant for those who are who have fled from the wrath of God, who have, found, who have found safety, who have found refuge, who have found security in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
And there's probably nothing more significant in God's eyes than that, that those who have done that experience confidence and sureness because it reflects on, on Christ, right? It reflects on him. He wants us to have this strong confidence. So that's who it's for. Number two is what is, it, what is strong confidence? He, he says it here. He says, it's so, so by two unchangeable things, which is an impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have this strong encouragement. This strong, what is this strong encouragement or strong confidence? What is this? He tells us this same, gives us the same principle in 1 John 5, 13, where he says, I write these things to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life that you might know that you have eternal life. These things have been written unto us to give us that assurance, to give us that confidence, to give us that strength. So what is this strength? The word strong here in the Greek means, it means mighty, powerful, vigilant, forceful, boisterous. This is one who has the strength of the core this is a part of the definition in, 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 in the lexicon. He has the strength of the core to sustain himself against the attacks of Satan. He has the strength of soul to sustain himself of the attacks of Satan. So the strength that's mentioned here is a strength that is a warlike strength. It is a strength that drives us into difficult situations and sustains us in those difficult situations. Turn with me, if you will, just a few pages to your right in Hebrews 11. According to Hebrews 11, these, this passage of Scripture is built around this type of strength, this type of confidence. The term is used here to describe these people. He says, and what more shall I say, verse 32, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war. That word mighty there is the same word. They were made mighty in war, and they put foreign enemies to flight. I just wrote this down, that this strength, that this, this assurance, this confidence that the Lord is 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 desiring for his people is the same strength that David ran out and fought against Goliath with. It's the same strength that David went out and, and killed a bear and a lion with his own bare hands. This is the same strength. It's the same strength where Samson would go out against 1,000 Philistine soldiers, not, not your weak soldiers, but talking about your special forces soldiers, and kill them all with a jawbone of, an, of a donkey. Right? Kill them all. This is the same strength that Gideon went out with 300 men and defeated 135,000 Midianites. This is the strength that God desires for us, and, it, and it's built in. It's built into your confidence that you have in your salvation. It's built into being assured of who you are and where you stand with God. 
It's built into knowing what your purpose is in life. It's built into these things. The strength that God desires for his people, the confidence that God desires for his people, the assurance that God desires for his people is an assurance and a confidence that makes them ready for battle. It is assurance like Job who lost everything and still praised the Lord. It is an assurance like Daniel who refused to stop praying even though he knew he would be thrown into a lion's den if he did. It is a confidence that the three Hebrew children had when they knew if they did not bow down to the king's decree and to the king's idol, they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. It is a confidence that Paul and Silas had who were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel and they sang praises to God. This is the confidence that the Lord desires for us to have in our, in our relationship with him, have assurance, our confidence that we have in him. It's not built upon us. It's built upon something far deeper than us. But this is what it looks like. Hebrews 11 is a chapter of the Bible that's full of people who had this confidence that the Lord calls us to in Hebrews 6. I'm pressing in for you to be this confident in the Lord. This isn't meant for everybody. It's meant for those who have embraced Christ the strength that he calls us to. The assurance is just means somebody who is convinced. He says that they, he desires for them to have a strong assurance. The word assurance just means to be convinced of something, to be so sure of something that it changes your philosophy and focus of life. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day those that have been entrusted to him. God has called us to a confidence. God has called us to an assurance. God has called us to strength that supersedes all natural human abilities. This is what God has called us to. Lastly, this morning, how does a person experience this strong assurance? What is this strong assurance built around? What is this confidence built around? He tells us very clearly in the Word of God. He says in verse number 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, the first thing that we see is this. The confidence that the author is writing about is a confidence that's built around the promises of God. It's built around something that God has said in his word, that God has spoken to us through his word that causes us, first of all, we have to believe it and embrace it, but it changes us. We believe it, we embrace it, and it transforms us into the image of Christ. It engages us in something that is beyond us. I already spoke to you about the promise that is spoken of here goes back to Genesis chapter number 12. It is truly a promise of Christ. Those who trust Christ, those who believe in Christ, those who embrace Christ, they will experience this strong assurance. But those who reject him will not. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on them. We want to experience this, this rich, deep, all-satisfying confidence. We must be driven to Christ. 
We must find it in him, not in anything that we have done. Yes, that is okay. It is okay to see the fruits of God in your life. It's okay to see the growth that God has performed in your life. But, but the deeper roots are not built around things that you have done. The deeper roots are built around the person of God. They're built around what he has done. They're built around what he has said. They're built around what he has promised. When you're wanting to build, you're wanting to build a strong foundation that will stand the test of time, that will stand any storm that could ever beat against it. You must not build on yourself. You must build on the Lord himself and his promises and his word. Have faith in his promises. The second thing is have faith in God's character. There are three things said in this passage of Scripture about God's character that should help us know and be sure of Him. Number one, His character is immutable. You say, well, what does that mean? That word just simply means it's unchanging. It cannot be altered. God's character cannot be altered. Hebrews 13 and verse 8 says that God is the same, yes, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Malachi 3, 6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Build your confidence in the Lord's promises, but also build confidence in the fact that the Lord's character never changes. It's unchanging. He says in verse number 10 that he is just in all that he does, that God is not unjust. His his character is not only unjust, not only not changing, but it is also just. In other words, God can never do anything that's unjust. And then it is honest. He says that God, by two unchangeable things, it's impossible for God to lie. It is not a part of God's character to be able to lie. He says in Titus 1 and verse 2 that for God who cannot lie, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began It is faith in the promises of God. It is faith in the character of God that drives drives us deep. I picture in my mind somebody who who has been, who was pouring cement, right? I don't know if you ever poured cement before, but they realize at some point that they're stuck in the cement and they can't get out. They've got a pretty strong foundation at that point, right? Probably not the type of foundation that they would want to have, but they've got a pretty strong foundation. This is what we need to build like. This is the type of foundation, listen, that we need in our lives to face the difficulties that come our way, to face the attacks that Satan throws at us. We must be building on the Lord. It is God's promises that are sure. It is God's promises that will get you through the difficult times. It is God's promises that will cause you to respond in the right way. It is God's character that's never changing that will cause you to walk in consistency in those things. But he doesn't stop there. That would be enough, right? It would be enough to give us some pretty strong confidence if we knew that we just had to build on God's promises and his unchanging, just, incapable of lying character. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says that he sealed his promise with an oath. In other words, he promised his promise would come true. He made an oath. He made a covenant that his promises that he made would come true. And this oath is the seal that we can put our confidence in. God's promises are sealed by an oath. God's promises are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 and verse 13, In Him 
you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is the oath that God has given us? God didn't just give us his word, right? You've heard people say, well, I'll give you my word, and my word is good enough. God didn't just give us his word. He gave us his son, and he gave us his spirit. Right? God gave us his son and he gave us his spirit and that is what we should be building confidently on that we are his and that we are sure of our salvation. Faith in the Holy Spirit's seal of us. And then lastly, faith in God's accomplishments, in in Christ's accomplishments. He says at the end, and when Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever under the order of Melchizedek. The last thing that he speaks about in this text is Christ's work, his redemptive work. He died on the cross for our sins. He uh, was buried. He rose again the third day. He now is with the heavenly father for eternity. His death on the cross, his sacrifice for our sins was sufficient for us to be saved. He opened the door. You, you, if you've ever heard the story of Christ, you know that when he died, the, 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 the temple, the veil, there was a, there's a big gigantic curtain in the temple that was between the people and the high priest could go in and, and God's presence was on that side. And the, temp, the veil just went right down the middle and it was a picture that we could now come into God's presence. We could now enter into God's presence based upon what Christ Jesus has done. Bible says in John 14, 6, I am the way, Jesus speaking, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's confidence. There's assurance. There's hope. There's eternal life for those who have embraced what Christ Jesus has done for them. The pressing in of this assurance is only meant for those who have faced their sinfulness have repented of that sins, their sins and have embraced Jesus Christ ultimately. I conclude my little story at the beginning, my testimony. I went through life doubting and struggling and wrestling. And, and like I said, every time that I heard a message about hell or uh, was on, saw something on TV or whatever, I would pray that prayer again. What I came to realize later in my life when I was in my late teenage years is I came to realize that my confidence was not in Christ but my confidence was in that prayer. The reason why every time I started to doubt my salvation, I went back to that prayer was because I was confident that that prayer could save me. I believed in my heart that if I just trusted in that prayer, if I just said the right words, if I just did the right thing, then God was was on the hook for saving me. The Lord opened up my eyes to seeing the fact that there's nothing that I could do to put God on the hook for anything. I begin to realize that Jesus Christ has done everything and that salvation is not found in me trusting something that I have done, but salvation is found in me trusting in what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. It was an amazing thing. My story is very, very interesting. I I put my faith in Christ. I I turned my attention from me to Christ. And and I can tell you, and I'm not making this up, I can tell you in in this moment of my life, it has been, it has been, I'm trying to think of how old I am, um, It has been 25 years plus, and I haven't doubted my salvation one time. Not one time. And every time that the devil comes my way, I just point him to Christ. 
I'm like, he's the one that did it all for me. If you want to talk to somebody about me not being saved, you need to talk to the one who saved me because he has to fail in order for me not to be saved. That's what the Lord wants. That's the confidence that the Lord is pressing on you today. The confidence that the Lord is pressing on me today. The confidence that is life-changing. The devil has no more say in your life because Jesus is the answer. I, 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 I experienced that. I experienced that by the grace of God. I could have gone through the rest of my life hoping that that prayer that I would say was going to save me, and I would have stood before God one day, and he would have said to me, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting condemnation. It was the grace of God that opened up these eyes to say to me, you can do nothing to become worthy of my acceptance, but Jesus Christ has done everything. And those who trust Jesus, the Bible says, will be blessed. But those who reject Jesus, those who trust in their own goodness and their own worthiness and their own righteousness, those who reject Christ as the only hope of salvation, the Bible says all the way back in Genesis 12 and then also into the New Testament, that they will be cursed. These are not my words, my friends. These are the words of our Heavenly Father who cares enough about us to tell the truth. The solution this morning for those who claim salvation based upon something that they have done, an experience that they have had, a work that they've accomplished, an event in their life, but they've never received Christ. They've never experienced true life-changing renewal. The solution is this. Come to Jesus. Come to him in humility. Come to him in repentance. Come to him in faith. We are promised in John 6.37 that all who come to Jesus in repentance and in faith, all who come to Jesus as a result of the Father bringing them, he says this, he will receive them, he will accept them, he will change them, and he will reject none of them. There it is. You say, Pastor John, that just sounds really simple. It is really simple. It is really difficult for a rebellious person. If you're sitting here this morning and you're one of those people who is saved, but you're doubting, you're struggling like no one's business on whether or not you're saved, you see your sinfulness, you see your unworthiness, you see your lack of acceptability, and you realize that there's no way that God could accept me. Listen to me, you're a prime candidate for God's accepting. Because that's the type of person that God accepts. If that's you this morning, the solution is simple. It is a single-minded focus on Christ. What has he done for you? What are his promises tell you in his word? How has he sealed you with his spirit? What is his character like towards his promises? In other words, the greatest confidence available to believers comes by having a focus on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 1 John 5.13, I read it to you earlier and I'm going to close with it. He says, these things... Have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God? These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And the King James says it this way, and that you might continue to believe on the name 
of the Son of God. My prayer for you this morning is if you're not a believer, Christ Jesus has done everything needed for you to be accepted. Embrace him by faith. When you, when you stand before God one day, he will receive you into his kingdom, not because you are acceptable, because Jesus is acceptable. And Jesus lives inside of all of those who trust him. If you're somebody this morning who's struggling with doubt, just take your focus off yourself. Every doubt is built around somebody focusing on themselves. It always is. Did I say the right words? Did I do the right thing? Did I repent enough? Did I have enough faith? Did I do this? Did I do that? Every doubt is built around us focusing on ourselves. Salvation is built around us focusing on Christ. And when you ask the question, did he say the right words? Did he experience death enough? Did he pay for enough sins? The answer is always yes. He did it sufficiently because you could not and I could not. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I pray that it will penetrate the hearts of all that are here in whatever way that you see fit to use it. You said that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish what it was sent out to accomplish. And I pray that that would happen this morning. I pray that you would change lives according to your will. Comfort those who are perhaps doubting, but are truly saved. And Lord, convict those who are perhaps confident, but are not truly saved. Accomplish your work this morning as only you can do. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.